Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of George Washington University and the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAPS Conversation Podcast, uh, where we talk to leading scholars in the field about their research, about current events, or whatever's on their mind. Uh, with me today is Michelle Browers. She's a professor at Wake Forest University and the director of Middle East and South Asia Studies Program, and she's the author of Political Ideology in the Arab World. Uh, Michelle, welcome to GW. Hi, thanks for having me. So I've been following some of the things you've been writing lately about Arab political thought, Arab political theory, and you've been doing some really interesting research on what Arab intellectuals have been thinking about since the uprisings and how they're trying to make sense of what's happened at this deeper theoretical level. Tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing, who you've been talking to, and kind of what you think are the major intellectual theoretical issues confronting Arab political intellectuals today. Well, the last book that I wrote really looked at some of the, what I called intellectual backstory to the cross-ideological protest activity that we were looking at. And so I was looking at how Arab nationalists and um, Arab scholars on the left were trying to accommodate the rise of political Islam and looking at how Islamists, um, who were isolated under authoritarian regimes, were reaching out to a broader public. Um, and so I was very interested in particularly intellectuals that were working across ideological divides. And so my research since, um, and I've just returned from Egypt, is following up with those intellectuals to see if the experience of, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood winning an election in, in Egypt, the Nahda party um, sort of taking the plurality in Tunis has had an impact on their thinking, as well as subsequent events, of course, um, the removal, the military removal of, of the Morsi administration, the crackdown on Islamists in Egypt, um, and the popular mobilization and support of those military maneuvers. Um, and, and what I'm finding in talking to people um, is that these sort of cultural mediators who are working across these divides um, are very much on the outs, uh, have very much been marginalized and isolated. Um, uh, they're precisely perhaps the people we need at this critical juncture where we have these large fissures opening up in various societies in the region, um, but they are not being listened to. And so part of my question was whether, in fact, this experience, this isolation um, has further um, led to transformations in their thinking. Do you see any signs of self-criticism or self-critique of people looking back to see what they got wrong, or is it more this voice in the wilderness complaining that they weren't listened to? Uh, it's not a lot of voice in the wilderness complaining that they're not listened to. It's um, sort of a digging in of their heels that I'm seeing for most people. I mean, it's hard to generalize because, mm -hmm. of course, different people are situated differently, and I really focus on uh, the political thought of individuals, not of organizations. Well, give me some examples. Well, so, for example, um, so in Egypt, I spent some time talking to Fahmi Huwaiti, a really interesting um, journalist, but also a, a thinker in, in his own right. Um, someone who, very interestingly, was um, not only sort of one of these really important figures to uh, mobilize cross, or not mobilize, but intellectually mobilize, mm -hmm. really, across ideological divides. And very calling, widely read political columnist you know, also. Really someone that uh, everyone uh, reads because he has his weekly column. He's on the news, or he was on the news. He's on a little bit less these days. Um, and, and so he's, he has a lot of impact and a lot of importance. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, he's the person that people look to, at least this is what I hear from some of the younger activists that I dealt with as well in Egypt, um, someone they look to to sort of cut through the chase. Um, I think that's particularly important right now when the media in Egypt is so full of rumor and, and uh, 
you know, slander and, and just misinformation more generally. Um, and he was very interesting to sort of look at him through this whole process uh, because at first uh, he was starting this critique of the, the Morsi administration. Um, and he was one of the people who was associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, um, although he hasn't been a member since his wayward youth. Um, he's very uh, keen on remaining associated mm -hmm. as an independent intellectual and not having any affiliation. So even during the uprisings, he did not take a large part, um, but he commented on them throughout. Um, so he became critical of the Morsi administration. And then, of course, when there was the military coup, he was one of the first ones to be critical of the removal of the Morsi administration. Um, and these days, his critique is mainly um, focused on the media, um, but also sort of mourning this sort of division within society. Um, he, you know, he tends to sort of follow um, in his pieces that he does in his weekly column, whatever the, the topic is of the moment. Right. Um, but he has occasionally these sustained pieces that show these rather firm commitment to ideals that I associated with him prior to the uprising. To give you just one example, there was this really interesting piece he wrote about, uh, you know, sort of responding to people who said that the Obama administration was behind the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he said, uh, you know, now that we've had the military coup, we can put this to rest. Um, but then he went on to explain what he saw as the logic of the Obama administration, right? He said um, the Obama administration uh, believed, I guess, uh, by virtue of the words of Jimmy Carter, that the election was verifiable and a legitimate election, and so they supported Morsi. Um, after the coup, there was this moment of, of um, uncertainty, um, because there are laws, he said, in, in the U.S. political system that's, that firmly say that if you have a coup, you cannot support it, so they had to support those laws. Um, and then later, when there was an election and, and CC came to power, then they could hop on board. Um, and so he sort of gave this account of sort of how democracy works and how rule of law works um, in a way that was partly a critique of the media mm -hmm. and the way they mislead the Egyptian public, but also sort of this broader lesson in some of the democratic ideals that he's come to be a strong supporter of over so, the years. So Beyond Huwaiti, so these um, these intellectuals who you've tracked over over more than a decade, who talked about cross ideological cooperation and kind of Islam bridging the Islamist secularist divide, what do they think now? I mean, Egypt's such a deeply polarized place on this question of the Islamists and and, and their adversaries. So, do they think that they were wrong? Do they think that this was a missed opportunity, or are they rethinking? the possibility of this kind of cooperation? Well, I will say that it is a, still a bit too early to sort of give them time to do that sort of more mm -hmm. sustained intellectual work to think back. Um, there, there are moments of self-criticism, but as I said, I think there's more an example of them re-articulating and reasserting um, ideas that they had before. To give you another example, Tarka Fishery, who was a really important figure, um, is now not very much in the public eye. I mean, if anything, he's sort of retreated to a more, um, sort of back to writing. Um, he's retired from public life. He'd retired from public life some time ago, but he was fairly outspoken um, for a period of time during the uprisings, after the uprisings, um, and after, uh, during the Morsi administration. 
Um, but now he's writing books where he's rearticulating again this idea of an Arab Islamic civilizational renewal project. Mm. Um, he's going through and doing these sort of conceptual analyses of democracy and citizenship. And I don't see any departures really from what he said before. Um, I really just see him giving these book length expositions of of precisely what he said, as if, you know, sort of this period of marginalization is an opportunity to sort of put down a bit more clearly what it was he believed and and still believes. Um, so so, so th th that's Hoytian, fascinating, I think, in many ways, that he's not taking this yeah. as an opportunity to say, okay, let's rethink it and let's do things differently. It's no, here I was right, let me tell you again in a bit more sustained way the ways so, in which this works. So Fahmi Wadi, Tarak Abishri, these are definitely from kind of an older generation. These are very senior figures. What about kind of the younger uh, intellectuals? And uh, what are, are you seeing any kind of new thinking emerging from them? Well, I mean, there's a series of young activists um, who are working, and this might be a little bit of a shift um, over to the left. Um, there are a number of new left journals that are starting to be established, and I'm just starting some of the research on that. I'm hoping to sort of shift focus to some of them. Um, I think we're going to see sort of more writings. I'm hoping we'll see some more writings. Unfortunately, some of that writing is going to be prison writings because many of these people are imprisoned at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, that is, I guess, another way to isolate and give people time to reflect, although I'm hearing from um, family members of activists in Egypt who are isolated in prisons that they're not getting much of an opportunity to think and write um, and get these out. But we did see a little bit on the anniversary come out. Um, but for those who are outside, um, and many of them in exile, we're seeing the emergence of a number of journals. There's one out of London called um, the Perpetual Revolution. Hmm. This is the Revolutionary Socialists. Um, there's another journal in Lebanon um, called Beginnings Bidayet. Uh, that is also trying to articulate sort of a new left vision that's doing some really interesting things and bringing sort of art and culture and architecture and spatial analyses sort of into the fold. So, um, so you see the intellectual energy coming out of these uh, kind of younger thinkers on the left. I, I, I see them sitting down and writing um, at this point. Uh, and that, uh, you know, part of that again has to do with how they're situated politically, socially, mm -hmm. in terms of the state institutions that quite often try to silence them. Um, some of the younger Islamist activists have had their websites shut down, um, are in prison, um, are much more focused on action than mm -hmm. they are on thinking, although I think we'll see some of those writings emerge. And we did. I mean, we've seen over um, a, a former Muslim Brotherhood members, particularly these reformist Islamists, have written their memoirs. Um, they've used this time mm -hmm. to do that. And so that's appearing in small pieces and sometimes in newspapers and online publications. A lot of the, a lot of the major texts in political theory have, have come out of revolutions or you know, these periods of, of, of rapid political change, Marx and Gramsci, and going all the way back. You know, you're looking at ways that these kinds of moments of turmoil become the crucible for new thinking. Do you see any sign or any possibility that uh, that, that could be the case in Egypt or in the broader Arab world, that uh, that, that as horrible as things have become, that this might then become the, 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 the source for some kind of really kind of new intellectual production, a reframing of political thought. 
um, from what you said so far, it sounds like mostly it's been more continuity with people working within established traditions. And I guess I'm wondering if you see any, who do you see out there, if anybody, who is starting to do things in a different way or to think things in a different way, whether within democratic theory or beyond democratic theory or anywhere else? You know, I mean, I think what we will see and what we are just starting to see is the growth of a generational divide, right? I mean, I think those who are sort of, as I put it, digging their heels in and sort of re-articulating ideas that they've um, articulated in earlier periods, even going back to the 80s, are an older generation. Yeah. So Tarkla Bishri is 80 years old. Um, Fahmi Huwadi is, is very aged. These younger intellectuals, however, are starting to find their voice. And so I think clearly they're going to be fundamentally impacted by what they've witnessed over the last five years. Um, so wh- whether or not it's in fact a change, I think is, is maybe maybe not a change, but really the development of their own voice. And I think that's the exciting thing to watch out for, mm-hmm. um, is the way in which, I mean, we've been asking this question, people who do Arab political thought always talk about, you know, who's the next generation? Where are the intellectuals of the current generation? And quite often people posit that there is no sort of intellectual life going on right now, which is, of course, baloney. Um, but what I think they're finding now through these five years, this experience, these uh, moments of hope and despair, are space to sort of articulate their own visions. And so you are finding um, these new publications that are very open to younger voices, who are doing things very differently, who are much more connected with an international intellectual community. I mean, not that earlier generations were not, but um, uh, I think these young leftists in particular are um, very much pulling from uh, critical theory. Um, They're returning in some cases to Gramsci, as you mentioned, to um, Trotsky even. Um, But they're really making it their own and fundamentally insistent upon how this is their own doing their own thinking, and they aren't beholden to past generations of political thought. I think you're finding a middle generation as well. I mean, I mentioned the memoirs of these um, reformist brothers, um, and and part of what they're doing is, I think, making uh, more concrete, um, and and, and maybe uh, it'll have intellectual impact, their break with the Muslim Brotherhood, and and sort of carving out, really, their sort of independent Mm -hmm. thinking. Um, and and mon- much of this memoir, you know, Abu Allah um, um, al-Mahdi, for example, has done a series of memoirs or writings about sort of his experience in the Brotherhood and accounting for his break with them. Um, and it's really, I mean, him articulating uh, this sort of perspective of something that's not mm-hmm. sort of traditional Brotherhood thinking. Um, and, you know, he's not necessarily one of the intellectuals of the movement, but I think as he does it, others will start to do mm-hmm. the same. Um, and, and so I think we really should pay close attention to uh, the youngers, mm-hmm. not just the middle generation, but particularly these younger people. Well, so methodologically speaking then, I mean, where do you think we should be looking for these? Should we? I mean, does it have to be books? Does it have to be academic journals? I mean, should we be, should we as political theorists or as scholars of political thought, should we be looking at people's Facebook posts and, um, you know, newspaper columns and online commentaries? Um, or, I mean, in other words, if you're talking about a new generation, should we be looking at the platforms where they actually engage, kind of these digital natives? Or do you think we're, it's still, ultimately, we want to see books. We want to see long, extended uh, theoretical reflections in kind of a traditional format. Right. I mean, do you think there's been a real change in that kind of intellectual production? Or is it... 
Yeah, I not think there's so been a change in intellectual production throughout the world, frankly. I mean, if you're going to look for sustained 800, you know, 600 word or 600 page uh, intellectual tomes from the current generation, you're just not going to find it. But it doesn't I, mean that they're not thinking seriously. No, it, it certainly doesn't. And you're finding, I mean, in some ways, much more creative. Uh, much more connected work coming out of this generation, in part because of the forums in which they do this, but also in the sort of articulations they do, right? Not just that they focused online, on blogs, um, but also that they they do things through creative um, ventures. There's mm -hmm. much more short story writing, novels, um, I think are a really important thing, not to be mine necessarily by me, but it's something that I think people who do political thought need to consider very carefully um, artistic and fictional forms of articulations of politics. Um, and many of the activists, um, that's the sort of writing that they're doing. I think we also need to perhaps pay a bit more attention to those blogs as well, um, since so much of, of publications and, and some of us, right, who do sort of more traditional political thought are starting to venture into those areas. Um, and it, it, it's interesting because it allows this, not only sort of this perpetuation of messages, but this ability to respond and interpret and to sort of, um, particularly through artistic forms, the use of art and art exhibitions, right? The ability of people to sort of take something that and make it their own out of these interactions, these intellectual interactions. That's great. And uh, so I'll keep uh, doing my research by following my Twitter feed. <laughs> Um, Twitter. <laughs> so, thank you. Uh, this is uh, You've been listening to the POMAPS Conversation Podcast. Uh, I'm Mark Lynch. We've been speaking with Michelle Browers of Wake Forest University. Uh, thanks for joining us.